Batman and the Huntress. Merry Christmas, everyone, and welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Diane. Taking you through a classic superhero team up, Batman and the Huntress from The Brave and the Bold, number 184, cover dated March 1982. And Diane, this won the Fire and Water Network's Patreon poll as to which Christmas team up we should do for this holiday season uh, by four times the number of votes uh, that the runner-up got. Uh, and I do right away that if I had to, to cover an Earth 2 Huntress story, the host of the Helena Wayne Huntress blog and podcast was the only person to go to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so, so in each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist will pick one character to defend. So in this case, Diane, who's your pick? Do I even need to ask? Oh, definitely the Huntress. So I will take Batman. <laughs> As is customary... We preface with the reason or reasons why we like the guest character. And Diane, what's so great about the Huntress? You've devoted a lot of time to this. <laughs> well, everything about the Huntress is great. But to get into specifics, the original Helena Wayne Huntress is a character who builds on legacy, two legacies to be exact. Uh, as Helena Wayne, the daughter of Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle, she carries the legacies of Batman and Catwoman. And as a member of the Justice Society of America, she builds on DC's Golden Age legacy. In addition to both of those things, Helena Wayne is a character who shapes her own identity and does the superhero lifestyle on her own terms. According to Helena herself, it's not the mantle of Batman that matters, but the people he inspires to continue his work and define his legacy in that way. As such, Helena defends the rights of Gotham citizens as an attorney by day and prowls the streets of Gotham in pursuit of justice as a huntress by night. So in addition to Bruce and Selina being her most important relationships, Helena Wayne is also best friends with Power Girl, also known as Kara Zor-El, also known as Supergirl's doppelganger on Earth 2. She also maintains a sibling-style relationship with Dick Grayson, the original Robin. Apart from a superhero lifestyle, Helena Wayne leads a mostly reserved personal life, but does have a romantic relationship with Gotham's very own district attorney, Harry Sims. Now, that's an interesting thing that's missing from the uh, the Bertinelli version. Being a lawyer and being part of the system in a way that Batman wasn't, in a way that the the you know the Helena Bertinelli Huntress isn't either. So that's an interesting wrinkle that um, they might want to think about using. I, I guess she's more like um, I guess the female uh, Manhunter has that sort of backstory now, but uh, that's really missing from the the more modern. Uh, Huntress. Yeah, so with the Huntress, it's very weird how DC Comics um, rebooted this character for the post-crisis continuity because they allude so much to the original Helena Wayne Huntress in that uh, she used to be the daughter of Batman and Catwoman, and you've got uh, Helena Bertinelli sometimes making references to that uh, in the first issue of Huntress number one, the 1989 series. Even her dad, who was called Guido Bertinelli at the time, actually alluded to the fact that Helena Wayne used to be a lawyer. So she's like, oh, so what am I getting for my money? Another lawyer? I've got plenty of those. So there are a lot of references to the fact that Helena Bertinelli used to be Helena Wayne, but at the same time, you notice that they wanted to move away from that concept. So we notice that Helena Bertinelli, for example, she never joined the Justice Society of America, which was Helena Wayne's team. So they got rid of that entirely. Uh, Helena Wayne had significant relationships with the Earth-1 Batman that was very familial 
She had a very good relationship with the Earth 2 Robin. She didn't really interact with the Earth 1 version of that character very much, but she definitely was very close to the one on her world, uh, the Dick Grayson of her world. She's got a very loving relationship with both of those characters. And then you've got Helena Bertinelli, who's got a largely antagonistic relationship with both characters. Dick Grayson is sexually attracted to her, but he doesn't trust her. And then you've got Batman, who just doesn't trust her for whatever reason, even though Helena, even when Helena Bertinelli doesn't actually do anything bad, you know, she's very much a detective as well. And she's a very passionate crime fighter. And I don't know where they get this impression that Helena Bertinelli is this character who is a Punisher, a Frank Castle type character. She was never really depicted that way until much later. So we don't mm-hmm. know what Batman is really basing his um, opinions on Helena Bertinelli are. But we notice that there are so many stark contrasts between the way Helena Wayne was depicted pre-crisis and the way Helena Bertinelli was depicted post-crisis. You can tell from DC Comics that there was you know, acknowledgement that she used to be Helena Wayne, but at the same time, they wanted to move away from that. So they kind of wanted to divorce the Bertinelli character from everything that made her identifiable as Helena Wayne, including changing her relationships. You know, for example, she was never friends with Power Girl in the post-crisis continuity, the way that she was with, you know, in the pre-crisis continuity. So even when Power Girl, you know, the two times really that she meaningfully interacted with Helena Bertinelli, Bertinelli didn't really understand why she was there. You know, why Why are you coming to me? You know, Bertinelli was a bit hostile to Power Girl in a way that Helena Wayne would have never been. So I really don't understand DC's position on the Huntress, if I'm honest, because their position is, is that the Huntress is a character with two distinct histories. So the Huntress is both Helena Wayne and Helena Bertinelli. So it doesn't really matter which one she is at the moment. It is what it is. But at the same time, these characters have such profoundly different core mythologies and narratives and even relationships as characters that it doesn't really make sense for DC to keep treating them as the same character. You've got uh, Helena Bertinelli who rejects her family legacy and creates a whole other identity, you know, in rejection to what her family used to do. And then you've got Helena Wayne who embraces her family legacy and continues that on her own terms. So... It's understandable why a lot of fans consider them separate characters because so much of their personalities, their character motivation, their core mythologies, even their relationships is profoundly different between the two versions. The thing I was going to say that I like about the Earth 2 Huntress, you know, I I read more stories with the, by this point at least, I've read more stories with the Bertinelli version. I've always liked this sort of setup where a character realizes that their family is a crime family. And then goes against that, you know, that has a motivation to like dismantle the family business sort of thing. So you, you see that in the, the original Huntress series. There's a vertical series called Mob Fire, which was kind of like that. I liked what I like about the Earth 2 Huntress is, um, I guess the costume and the name, the fact that they are not derivative. She is not a bad, you know, in another universe. Uh, where, you know, some different writers, she would have been the Earth 2 Batgirl, you know, something like that, like a cat girl or a Batgirl. But the, the Huntress name, even though it comes from, there is a Golden Age character that was called the Huntress that they now call the Tigress, but it has no real relationship to Batman and Catwoman. It's just like they went and picked up that other name because the Tigress, hunt, the original Huntress, I guess, had a cat-like motif, sure. But she doesn't necessarily look like 
a bad character. There are hints of it. There are hints of Catwoman and Batman both in the costume. But it, it kind of looks like its own thing. I, I like that because she's her own woman. She's her own character. Even though she's part of a couple legacies, she does not feel as derivative as some of the other characters in the Bat family. And at the same time, I think that's why, you know, that's why now we have a, a Huntress that is Huntress by name only, basically. Because you could say Huntress and that costume or a, a a similar costume could be a completely different character. And that's what they did basically with the, the new one. She, uh, she's sort of a victim of her own success in that way. It's like the, the character concept was stronger than the legacy ultimately for DC. Yeah. And that, and that's a real shame too, because there's so much that you can do with a character like Helena Wayne, you know, there's so much story potential in the character. And while um, Helena Bertinelli explores a very different concept entirely, you know, she doesn't continue Helena Wayne's legacy in any real capacity. She just kind of took the name from the character and just rolled into a different direction, so to speak. But yeah, so, and it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because the whole idea of the Huntress started with uh, an Earth 2 Batgirl as a member of the Justice Society to alleviate Power Girl from the burden of being the only woman on the team. And originally, the, I guess they were going to go with uh, Betty Kane. Okay, yeah. As the uh, Earth 2 Batgirl, it was going to be integrated into the JSA, but Paul Levitz, who was writer and editor at the time, did not feel that the character had very strong uh, story potential, so they kind of scrapped the idea at first, and then you've got Joe Stanton says, hey, you know, we should really definitely create another female character to join the team. That's when he came out with the sketch of the Huntress as we know her, and um, he presented that to... Paul Levitz and Bill Blayton, and they together they kind of uh, created the origin story for the Huntress, and that's how Helena Wayne came to be. So it started with a sketch of a bat-looking woman, and then from that sketch, they developed the origin story that she should be the daughter of Batman and Catwoman, and she should be called the Huntress. So the Huntress identity still homages uh, Batman and Catwoman in that you know they both of those animals can be predators. Not necessarily in the case of bats, because they can also um, they can eat fruits as well, but they can also be predators. And um, cats are definitely uh, predators or hunters. And so she became the huntress as a way of homaging both of those legacies. But at the same time, she's creating something of her own. She's creating her own identity that's not necessarily continuing what Bruce and Selina started. She's basically doing her own thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what really makes her stand out as a character. So I would say that, you know, if she had continued post-crisis, let's say, for example, that she continued to be Helena Wayne post-crisis, I think she would have ended up being depicted like the Helena Kyle character from the Birds of Prey television show from 2002. Because, you know... I, I noticed that when you look at post-crisis, they wanted to reboot or retool the DC Universe in such a way that built on successes like Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, uh, The Killing Joke, because those three stories were very successful for them in the 1980s. And so they wanted to capitalize on that. So even if we did not get, you know, Helena Bertinelli post-crisis, if we had ended up with a version of Helena Wayne post-crisis, I think she would have ended up being more like the Helena Kyle character from Birds of Prey in which Batman was not directly involved in her upbringing and Bruce and Selina never married. And she probably would have been raised by Selina alone. But yeah, they definitely went in a completely different direction for post-crisis DC. They wanted to build on the successes of stories that were so out of the ordinary for them, like Dark Knight Returns, that they felt, hey, you know what, this is where the money's going. So let's 
make the rest of the DC universe in this model. And that didn't work out very long term, as you can tell, because as soon as the cracks of the post-crisis foundation started to show, meaning that the various Earths that they merged couldn't really come together naturally the way that they wanted. So they kind of went into zero hour to try and fix some of those issues. And it just created more issues. And then, of course, Infinite Crisis had another go at it. And with Infinite Crisis, they actually restored a version of the DC multiverse that was based off of the pre-crisis one. But they never really, you know, split up the Earths, the single Earth into the different mul- multiple Earths again. Yeah, they, they've been in a cycle of <laughs> reboot and redos, uh, you know, mulligans ever since Crisis, really, every every few years. That's that's for sure. It's, it's ironic, too, because when you think about it, the pre-Crisis universe, it naturally evolved into a multiverse as a consequence of a lengthy publication history, because prior to Crisis on Infinite Earths, the DC lineup, you know, had experienced about 50 years of publication without changing much of this without without rebooting you know Mm -hmm. the one the one major reboot that i guess you could say is a reboot is when they created the silver age characters in 1955 like you know barry allen replaced jay garrick as the flash um hal jordan replaced uh alan scott as the green lantern and with the establishment of those new characters then you know the justice league replaced the justice society and it just became something else entirely so and then of course people ask you hey what happened to those golden age characters that had those same names you know and so they found a way to reintegrate those characters without rebooting the universe a second time so they just said oh well all those characters that you read about in the 40s and 50s they actually appeared in another world they were they were part of another world and so they brought back you know those characters as existing on a separate earth known as earth 2 and that's where the huntress is from so she's the daughter of the golden age versions of bruce and selena whereas the earth one batman they basically slightly changed his origin so that he was a slightly different character from his golden age counterpart so that's really the only real reboot was that in 1955 they created new characters and this started the Silver Age, which was the, I guess you could say the Space Age or the weird sci-fi tropes age where anything and everything went. Yeah, and then, the, the Atomic Age. <laughs> the Atomic Age, yeah. And then you've got the um, Bronze Age, which actually started to fully utilize the multiverse. And you started getting all of those... Um, JSA and JLA crossovers between Earth 1 and Earth 2. And this started like in the early 60s and continued on through the 70s and 80s. And then Crisis, you know, uh, Marf Wolfman, Dick Giordano, and they decided, you know what, there's too many Earths, there are too many characters, we need to clean house. And I think that was more a problem for DC staff than readers, because readers, you know, love the multiverse concept. They like that on one Earth, you know, the characters got older on another Earth, the characters were in their prime, and you've got the Captain Marvel universe, you've got the um, Freedom Fighters on Earth X. Yeah, so readers really loved the multiverse concept, but I think it was more of an annoyance for the people who are actually working at DC, and so they saw the multiverse as a mistake. And when you read the original Crisis on Infinite Earth storyline, you see that. You see that mentality of, oh, the multiverse was a mistake. You know, it was never meant to be these multiple universes. You know, it has, should have always been one universe. And you see this message throughout the actual story. And so that's what Marf Wolfman, the writer of Crisis on Infinite Earths, ended up doing. He merged all of those different Earths into one single universe. But what Wolfman and the rest of DC staff didn't take into account is that 
all of these different worlds, they evolved in a span of years and they've become their own separate entities. And that's a natural course of evolution for those things, for those properties. And then to try and merge them all into one earth, it became clear right away that they were not really meant to exist in one, on one earth. You know, Captain Marvel stops being, you know, significant when he's now on the same earth as Superman. And then you've got the Justice League overshadowing the Justice Society. They become, they made the Justice League made Infinity Inc irrelevant. It just didn't really work out the way that they hoped. And so that's when they started this endless cycle of constant reboots and resets. And now we're on to, we're about to have another one in 2020, where they're going to rewrite pre-crisis history again, where they're going to say that, oh no, Wonder Woman was the first superhero, not Superman. I guess to bring it in line with the movies, you know, basically these, these characters are now IPs and their products. And so they're, you know, suddenly something that's happening in one medium is affecting the other media. So it's a lot of editorially driven material rather than the organic way that it grew that you were talking about, you know, and through the Silver Age and Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And, but there are good things about the, you know, I am a post crisis. Um, kid, I guess you know that's. Uh, <laughs> I, I was reading DC Comics before the crisis, but the explosion for me was post crisis. I don't like crisis very much, but the uh, the universe after that, and the, the idea that now that they're not on the on different Earths, they can cross over more easily. They can be part of each other's stories more easily. I think that's what they were going after. It's like how do we? Because I think they thought the readers that were reading. The main line uh, might think that uh, all the Earth 2 stuff, All-Star Squadron and uh, uh, Infinity Inc., well, that's on, an, on a different Earth, so I can ignore that. I cannot read those. Uh, and if we do a Shazam book, it's going to be on Earth S. And, okay, I don't need to read that because it's not part of the main line. They were trying to to make it more like Marvel Comics, where everything happens uh, in the same history and universe and everything happens in New York City, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that's what they were going for. They were trying to beat Marvel at their own game because Marvel was uh, doing better than they were at the time. I think that's, that's I think that was the, the point of it. But Huntress was, to bring it back to, to Helena, Huntress was one of the victims because there's no place for a legacy character at this point that is the daughter of characters that are too young to have a daughter in the main continuity. I'm, I'm even surprised that they kept using her. You know, it's like, well, we've got this interesting character, interesting outfit and name. We can make something of this, but we just, we have to jettison her entire history, uh, which is sort of what they did with Power Girl as well. You know, there was that terrible time when she was in like the, the, the granddaughter of Arion of Atlantis. <laughs> it's like, we just have to fit these characters in there somehow. Yeah. And they were not better off for it either. You know, Power Girl, I think, well, at least with the Hunters, they managed to finally integrate her into something like the Birds of Prey. But then you've got Power Girl who, she got her pre-crisis history back, but she did not benefit from that. You know, she just became an even more tragic figure than before. And I'll be honest, I really hated that status quo for Power Girl. She's not, she's not a character that I can register as tragic, you know, being the sole survivor of an entire universe. And she's forced to live on an earth where a version of her family exists, but it's not her family. A version of her exists, but it's not her. And you, a huntress exists, but it's not her huntress. That was a terrible, terrible uh, status quo for 
Power Girl post crisis. I I really hated it. It was post Infinite Crisis actually, and I remember when I read uh, JSA Annual Number One, I was hoping that you know they would actually bring Helena Wayne back. You know, sure she'll be a sole survivor of Earth Two as well, but at least Power Girl would have someone to share that burden with instead of just being the sole survivor of. Uh, an entire universe. I really hated that status quo for her, and I really don't want them to go back to that. So if they integrate Power Girl into the post-crisis, or well, I don't know what they're going to call it, the 5G <laughs> timeline, yeah. uh, they, they, they're saying another crisis is going to happen and that's going to kickstart the 5G storyline. I'm like, um, I don't know what to call it. I, so if they decide to reintegrate the character, because a lot of people love that character, especially uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and... Uh, his wife, Amanda Connor. Amanda Connor, they, yeah. They love those characters, but they haven't figured out how to integrate her into the main universe because she, Supergirl already exists. So, you know, and she's very much a character who works, you know, on a world like Earth 2. So what do you do? With, and if Helena Wayne gets born into the main universe, where does that leave Power Girl? So it, it's just, I can see this whole timeline repeating the same problems as the original post-crisis timeline where they did the whole history of the dc universe and it's just gonna it's just going to lead to the same exact problems as before and i wrote a whole post about this but it's just i don't see this ending well you know i think (laughs) i think they should really just stop obsessing over trying to make incongruent parts into a single whole and just realize okay maybe some things work better in a multiverse setting like power girl and helena wayne as the huntress you know, the Justice Society, Infinity Inc., those characters work better on Earth 2. And, you know, leave Earth 1 as the Justice League Earth and the Teen Titans Earth and the Birds of Prey Earth and all those characters that actually work, you know, as Earth 1 characters. And, you know, just go back to having a multiverse because it's way less confusing, way less convoluted. You don't have to constantly rewrite characters histories to make it all work because that just ends up confusing not just older readers but especially newer readers because you know you you have so much conflicting information you've got a pre-crisis huntress and a post-crisis huntress and a new 52 huntress and a rebirth huntress and you've got so many different versions of the huntress it overwhelms uh, a new reader in well, trying it, to get it keeps you in character. business, uh, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> uh, but let, let, let's uh, if people are looking for uh, usually we do like a publication history. You, I mean, we just gave a, a huge context for <laughs> for uh, her post crisis history at least. Uh, mm-hmm. But if people are looking for stories starring Helena Wayne, the original Earth Two Huntress. What's the publication history there? Where where do people go? What, what are you? What are they trying to find in the? Uh, you know, in the dollar boxes. Um, so if you want to get in contact with the original Helena Wayne Huntress, she can be found in the Bronze Age run of All-Star Comics um, and Adventure Comics, which were published between 1976 and I think 1978, 1979. Actually, those stories were recently reprinted in a new hardcover called All-Star Comics, Only Legends Live Forever. That actually came out back in October of this year. It collects the entire JSA run from the from 1976 to 1979. So all of it is there. So if you want to see how Helena Wayne, uh, if you want to see her literal first appearances in comics, All-Star Comics and Adventure Comics, you see her interact with the Justice Society of America as well. She teams up with them. She even fights the original Golden Age Huntress in one of those stories. You see her establish her friendship with Power Girl and also those... Um, stories 
And then, of course, you've got the upcoming Huntress Origins paperback, which is actually a reprint of Huntress Dark Knight, uh, Daughter from 2006. All of those stories, her solo stories from Batman Family and the first um, few years of Wonder Woman that Paul Levitz worked on, all that's going to be collected again in January 2020 in Huntress Origins in to coincide with the release of the Birds of Prey movie that's coming out in February. Which is weird because that version is Helena Bertinelli in the film, but DC Comics is DC Comics. Anyway, so yeah, you've got at least two books. One that's out now and another one that's coming out in January that's collecting all of Helena Wayne's pre-crisis, or at least most of Helena Wayne's pre-crisis histories. Um, You can also find her in Infinity Inc. Issues 1 through 12, she's in that entire storyline. And then she also appears in Alan Scott's Wedding in Infinity Inc. number 21. There's also the Crisis on Infinite Earths tie-in with Infinity Inc. number 25. And you also got America versus the Justice Society, which is also out on trade. Um, I don't know if it's still in print, but that one came out back in 2015. Um, so you can actually hunt that one down. You can also find it digitally on Comixology and on the DC Universe app. You can find those there. And then, of course, if you want to get to Helena Wayne's origin story itself, DC Superstars number 17 is also the one story that actually tells her origin story. It's the last story in that particular magazine. And then, of course, Helena Wayne also appeared in The Brave and the Bold um, 184, which is the story we're going to cover for this particular podcast. That's right. A Christmas story. And if you're listening to the show, the day it drops, it's Christmas Eve 2019. Uh, So it's a a perfect time to cover uh, this tale. Uh, let's get into it. It's called The Batman's Last Christmas by writer Mike W. Barr and artist Jim Apero. Three days before Christmas, the kids of the Gotham's children's home are playing with broken toys when there's a tap at the door. It's a sack of gifts, courtesy The Batman. Getting a call from Commissioner Gordon, Batman puts his satanic duties to the side and meets his old friend. Seems like they had a mob informant who was going to release local mob boss Spurs Sanders' accounting records to the GCPD. But one of Sanders' men got to him first, and the police lost him in town before they could recover the papers. Can Batman help? He sure can. Surveying the street and expecting the crooks to wear a disguise, the Dark Knight detective correctly intuits that the Santa Claus running down the sidewalk is his man. He's in pursuit. Meanwhile, on the parallel world known as Earth 2, the huntress Helena Wayne is not feeling the holiday cheer. Deciding not to spend the holidays alone, she decides to take a trip to Earth 1 via the JSA and JLA transporter tubes to meet with the Earth 1 version of her father, Bruce Wayne. Upon arriving, Helena thinks about how strange it is to have one version of Gotham for almost an exact duplicate version of the city on another Earth. She then thinks about what she should get her alternate universe father for a gift as she searches for him. Batman knocks the bad Santa down an alley and recovers the files. One of them is labeled Thomas Wayne and shows Bruce's dad was bankrolling Sanders. Could it be true? He's distracted and doesn't see the crook behind him raise his gun. Just as the bad Santa's about to fire his gun at an unsuspecting Batman, the Huntress quickly comes to his rescue and prevents his murder. She finds the Batman is fazed by something but asks him if he's alright. 
the Batman confirms that he is not because... He just doesn't know who he is anymore now that the new information has come to light. He brings Helena to his penthouse at the Wayne Foundation building to talk things over. At the penthouse, Bruce confesses to Helena he doesn't know how to process the possibility his father may have been bankrolling a local crime boss all those years ago. Helena then tells Bruce that he is a detective and he owes it to himself to find out the truth. Bruce decides to call on the Wayne's old accountant. Amos Randolph, who he hasn't seen in years. And the next day, he and Helena pay the old man a visit. Old and sick, part of his house has been converted into a hospital, but he's well enough to receive Bruce and his um, cousin from out of town. Bruce gives him a Christmas gift, a picture of Randolph's uh, with the Wayne family, and Randolph reciprocates by showing him his old ledgers, which indeed show mysterious monthly $10,000 withdrawals that match Sanders' books. Next stop, Spurs Sanders' estate, which they visit as Batman and the Huntress. Batman surprises the security guards by hiding under snow. Then they kick the door down and everyone behind it. Spurs Sanders appears with a cowboy shtick Batman quickly puts a stop to. He knows Spurs is a local boy. They question him about Thomas Wayne, and Sanders plays a tape of Bruce's dad agreeing to finance his criminal activities. And if Batman doesn't want the tape to get out since he obviously cares about this, he should give back the records he confiscated. He gives them till Christmas to think about it. Then a grieved Batman gives Huntress the slip. But the Huntress does not need to follow Batman to know where he's headed. The place she has in mind is a place she visited often enough with her own father, the graves of her long-deceased grandparents. Batman and his parents' graves, questioning his mission. Why avenge them when they were no better than the worst criminals he fought in their name? To continue his career as Batman would make him a hypocrite, and so he throws off the cow. The Huntress has seen this sight play out before on her own earth, the night her mother died, as also the night her father threw away his cow and burnt it to ashes. Bruce Wayne returns to living the life of a millionaire playboy, albeit a very sad one. Meanwhile, the Huntress patrols Gotham in Batman's stead and decides to follow up on the bad Santa from earlier and to make sure that he's safe from harm. It turns out his boss, Spurs Sanders, decides to tie up a loose end, him. Luckily for Bad Santa, the Huntress was nearby to save his life from an assassination attempt, and his son gets to see his father live to see another day. Bruce observes the scene from afar, and he has an epiphany. Yeah, Bruce has done some thinking, and hey, even if his parents were crooks, Batman must exist to spare others the loss he suffered when his parents were murdered. That hasn't changed. And besides, nothing's been proven yet. Returning to Wayne Manor for clues, the visit jogs his memory. He remembers Randolph coming to see his parents on one Christmas long ago and giving him a toy fire engine and that's it. Well, not the fire engine, but something else. Time to get back into costume. The Huntress could not be happier to see her Earthworm father take up the mantle of Batman once more. She cries tears of joy. Batman appears at Randolph's bedside. In the night, he brings a present. The truth. He tells them he's been rumbled. Batman knows Randolph embezzled funds from the Waynes to help Sanders build his criminal empire, and that he faked Wayne's voice for Sanders. The proof is that his nervous tapping, flip back through the story and you will hear it, could be heard on the tape. Even if Batman can't prove it, it doesn't matter. Randolph is already in a kind of prison, and he'll die there. While Batman is paying Randolph a visit, the Huntress pays a visit of her own to spur Sanders himself. She informs him that Thomas Wayne on his tapes is nothing more than a clever impersonator and that he's lost his grip on the Batman. Sanderson informs the Huntress electronic voice printing is an evidence in a court of law. The Huntress then informs 
that even if electronic voice printing isn't enough to convince a court of law, giving the story to the press will most definitely convince the general public. Either way, he's a jailbird because the huntress dropped off all his records to Commissioner Gordon, who sat Saunders on the top of his Christmas list for quite some time. Christmas Day, and as families the world over get up to celebrate, the huntress is witness to Batman standing over his parents' graves, renewing his vow to dedicate his life to his war on criminals. <laughs> That's the Batman's last Christmas. Uh, or not, not so last, almost last Christmas. Uh, but Christmas is saved and the Batman is saved. So this is a story that, that's personally dear to you. I mean, it's part of your Christmas tradition, isn't it? Yeah, most definitely. And I love, it's very much a Christmas story because you notice that so much of the story is centered on the idea of family and what that means to the various people involved in the story. You know, it, ex it also explores the, theme of forgiveness, uh, which crimes are forgivable and which ones are not. And that's that whole theme is explored through the points of view of three different characters, Batman, Huntress, and the Bad Santa's son, because all three of them know people in their lives who are family or close to family that, you know, have a criminal past. And so that is something that is explored in all three of those characters. You know, for the Huntress, she has her mom, who was Catwoman in her youth. For Bruce Wayne, that was Amos Randolph, the accountant that was most trusted by his father. And then you've got the bad Santa's son, who sees his father as his father. He's completely unaware of his criminal activity. So the whole story is centered on the idea of, you know, should you treat people badly because of their past? You know, the, all of the people that you encounter have a family of sorts. You know, that person can be a father, that person can be a mother, that person can be uh, a child. Who are we to judge? Any of the people that we do just based on what they do. And there's a whole lot to that theme that gets explored through all three of those characters. Uh, not only is there like the family friend for Batman, but there's a question as to his parents' uh, ethics. And uh, and they, I never really like it when they when they do that in, in modern comics. You know, they, they've done that where... Uh, Thomas Wayne maybe was at the head of a secret society and stuff like that is like, Ugh, why, why are you digging up that grave? You know, and I did, did that a lot in the Bronze Age where Batman questions his mission. What is his mission about? And if his parents were crooked and I, I, you know, I don't know that his mom is guilty of anything here. <laughs> That's not quite fair to the mom, <laughs> to Martha Wayne. If his dad was corrupt, what does that mean for his mission? Does that mean that? That now it's pointless and that that's what he questions here. And no, no, I mean, you're not Batman because your parents were good and you're trying to, to live up to that standard. You're Batman because as a child, you suffered trauma, uh, crime robbed you of something, uh, you know, just like the Helena Bertinelli character, just to, to throw it back to her. She becomes a crime fighter because as penance. For, in a way, for her family being involved in organized crime. So the crime fighting element of the character doesn't, you know, isn't predicated on the goodness of the parent. And he didn't know, and, and it turns out they weren't corrupt after all, but he, he didn't know they were corrupt. And maybe like, just like the kid, uh, whose uh, father was, uh, you know, almost shot Batman in the back. He doesn't know his dad's a crook. There is a goodness in everyone. I think that is the Christmas thing here. Uh, the, the the Frank Capra kind of uh, element to it is that there is a, an innate goodness in, in people and they can be good parents and yet still be involved in something nefarious. 
but then you have to deal with that as well. And that's, you know, that's what Batman and Huntress do. Uh, but they each bring a different perspective to it because obviously Huntress has forgiven her mother long ago. Her mother reformed, right? Yes, that's correct. The story is very much about this. There's, I, I love it that there's a, um, on page 10, on the second panel, there's a sign that says in the, the store window that says, don't forget mom and dad this Christmas. You know, and that's, <laughs> there it is. That's the theme of it. Yeah, I, I, I'm very sure that was very purposely put there. But I, I happen to notice every time that there is, uh, that this story gets explored with Batman, you know, wh- whether or not his parents were criminals, why always Thomas Wayne and never his mom? I mean, I guess in Flashpoint, his mom became uh, the Joker oh, yeah. of that universe. But then you have, you know, the current New 52 or Rebirth, whatever, so the post-Flashpoint continuity. This theme with Thomas Wayne has been explored at least twice. In the Flashpoint universe, it was actually Bruce who was killed in Crime Alley instead of Martha and uh, Thomas Wayne. And so they both responded to that death very differently. Martha became the Joker and... Uh, Thomas Wayne became Batman, but he's a very violent Batman. He actually murders people and his world is completely awful. And then you've got the new 52 version of Earth 2 where Thomas Wayne did not actually die in Crime Alley. He turned out to be alive, but he was also tied to the mafia. So actually his death or what was supposed to be his death on Crime Alley was supposed to be a mob hit. So Frankie Falcone, whom he actually treated in the hospital at one point and became very close friends with, supplied him with drugs. And he became, you know, a close friend of uh, a mobster, of an actual mafia crime boss. And so Frankie Falcone, when he felt betrayed by Thomas Wayne, because by then Bruce had been born and he wanted to move away from being a part of organized crime, you know, Frankie Falcone responded by attempting to murder both people. So Martha died, Thomas survived, but then he chose a life of revenge instead of actually reuniting or getting back together with Bruce. So when Bruce found out that his father was still alive, but was actually a criminal in his past, then he, he stopped, you know, he started to question, you know, why am I Batman? You know, I became Batman in response to your death, but now that you're actually alive, and I know that you chose a life of revenge instead of a life with me, I want nothing to do with you anymore, you know. So he didn't stop being Batman, but his motivation definitely changed. And this was also the version of Bruce Wayne, who still married uh, Selina Kyle, Catwoman, who was more of a hero in this uh, version of Earth 2 than in the past version of it. And then Helena Wayne was still born. But now it's so weird because Helena Wayne, when she was introduced in the post-Flashpoint universe, she was introduced as Helena Bertinelli. In the Huntress 2011 miniseries of The New 52, so she was introduced as Helena Bertinelli, and then she revealed that Helena Bertinelli was just an alias that she was using. It was not even her real one, and she was Helena Wayne the whole time. So it's weird because I don't think DC planned for Helena Wayne to have a mafia connection, and yet she actually has that on Earth too, but somehow it's not uh, Franco Bertinelli or some... Earth 2 version of the Bertinelli family that her dad, her grandfather was connected to was actually Frankie Falcone. And so it's weird. The post-Flashpoint version of Helena Wayne has an even bigger criminal background than before. Her grandfather was part of organized crime. And so she's not a Bertinelli, but she's now got one part of Helena Bertinelli's origin integrated into her own origin story. It's just, it's a weird yeah. mess. DC, DC can't, just can't pick one. And then you've got the current Batman run by Tom King. 
who brought back the Flashpoint Thomas Wayne, and he's this version of Thomas Wayne is so unhinged, so deranged that he's trying to force his son Bruce to stop being Batman by basically wrecking his life. So we've had at least two villainous versions of Thomas Wayne in this decade alone. Yeah. But then before that, you had Grant Morrison also pulled that trick. Uh, I don't even remember how it ended, but there was a, like a Thomas Wayne with a, who was still alive and had like a, like a domino mask and was part of a secret society. He probably was revealed to be, to not be Thomas Wayne, but he still pulled that story. And if you look at the irritating Joker movie, Thomas Wayne is sort of a, is also a jerk. So uh, they're just like throwing Thomas Wayne under the bus uh, all the time. And it's just, it's just <laughs> polluting Batman's origin, I think. It's just, it's not necessary. Just let these people be dead. It's like, it's like I don't need to read a Spider-Man story where Uncle Ben uh, was a hitman or something. You know, it's, it's like, leave those things alone. We don't need to see that because it's not important because those characters are dead. And they're just part of the origin story. I, I don't need more than that. And it's so funny that in the story that we're talking about now, we're, we're talking about a Thomas Wayne who was actually a good citizen. He was not even a criminal, but his accountant posed as him and he actually funded an, a local crime boss. You know, he funneled Wayne family money to bankroll this one mobster. And that's what throws Bruce Wayne for a loop there. But the thing is, the difference here is that they don't actually pollute Thomas Wayne in doing so. They just propose that question and so they do so with the intention of Bruce thinking you know would I still be Batman if my father was a terrible person or if he actually bankrolled organized crime would I still you know be Batman would I still be upholding that message of avenging families that were hurt by organized crime and so that's what he realizes at the end of the story so I would say that the Bronze Age explored that theme a lot better than modern comics whereas modern comics is going more for the shock value of Thomas Wayne actually having been a terrible person the Bronze Age actually explored that idea with um, Thomas Wayne actually explored that idea with Thomas Wayne without actually polluting Thomas Wayne. So, and it was more done to present Batman with a question. What if your dad was not actually a good person? What if he was actually a criminal? Would you still be Batman? And would you still be Batman for the same reason? And that's when he realizes, you know what, the Batman is more than just avenging my parents' death. It's also about keeping other people, especially young kids, from experiencing the same trauma that I experienced as a young kid. So he realizes that there's a much bigger purpose for Batman than just beating up criminals and unleashing and basically finding an outlet for his anger. It was, it's so much more than that. But I feel that Bronze Age did a better job at executing that message because they were not trying to change Batman in any capacity. They were not trying to change people's perception of Batman or his family. They were just trying to challenge Batman, the character himself, which is what I think the story should always be. You know, challenge Batman, but do not challenge uh, readers' um, understanding of the character because why do you want to change who the character is to the audience? You're going to end up, you know, reinforcing a different message entirely from probably the one that is supposed to be Batman's narrative. And I think that's the function of Huntress in this because you could look at this story and say, well, Huntress isn't really all that necessary uh, in terms of plot. You know, she she shows up. She hangs around with Batman, uh, but for the most part, 
everything here is like is what Batman could be doing, even to the point, you know, he could have gone to Sanders at the end, uh, which is more or less her only solo moment. Or I guess there is the, that part with the Bat Santa. So she, she's got to her moments. But to the overall plot of this, Batman could still have had that shock could still have been questioning and without Huntress there. But her function is that there it is. There's the example. Here is the daughter of a criminal, of someone who did bad things. And it has not changed her drive to do good. You know, it's like we're, we're seeing that contrast all through the story. The person who's being shocked now and, and questioning himself now, and the person who who's had that reflection long ago and it didn't matter. And she's sort of, she's desperate for this Batman not to go the wrong way because of this information, because you know, she, she's a wiser person. She's actually the wiser character here, even though she's the younger character. Yeah. Because she's already been aware of her parents history ever since she was a young child. So she was not even all that shocked that Batman was already questioning, you know, his mission, but she was more afraid that he was going to give it up entirely. And so that's where all of this comes together. And the Huntress, yeah, she obviously, she's already had that question when she stopped at her mother's. So when you look at DC Superstars, number 17, she already went through that crisis. She already went through that traumatic event of losing her mother, but also being aware that of her mother's past. And it was her mother's past that actually got her to... Uh, what led to her death basically and so she already came to terms with that she already went through that journey she already went through that question of you know how does my mom's legacy affect me and of course this is a theme that joey cavallari will later explore in his own way but then you've got the huntress who's trying to keep the earth one bruce from giving up something that is important an important part of his identity an important part of his raison d'etre as an individual and so she's going through all of these motions with him. And um, the Huntress, she understands where he's coming from. So she understands, you know, the pain of the criminal past, you know, affecting his future. She wants to be there for him. And I guess you could say, yeah, I definitely agree with your point that, you know, she's there to basically provide the light at the end of the tunnel for Batman, showing that, yeah, you know what, maybe if even if your dad did terrible things, you became Batman for something entirely different. Just like I became the Huntress for something entirely different. You know, this is something I would have done regardless if my parents had died or not. So it's all about serving a greater purpose. It's about serving a different purpose a greater, much stronger purpose. You know, there's a lot of people in the world and a lot of people are powerless to help their situation. So if I can at least help them in some capacity, that's all that matters. And that's basically what she brings to the table here. You know, it's not the reason you became Batman that matters. It's the reason you do it at all that matters. You know, what drives you to do this every single night and not just once to avenge your parents' death? You know, what drives you to do this every single night? And it turns out that I do it because there's a lot of people who are hurting. Crime is not a thing of the past. It's a constant ongoing thing. So I want to spare young children, especially the same trauma that I experienced. And that's kind of the same case with the Huntress. You know, I want to... Not only continue my parents' legacy, not only continue what my father started, but I want to prevent other children from experiencing the same traumatic experience of loss that I experienced when I lost my mum. So it all comes full circle in this story. I don't know if you had the, that same impression, but uh, to me, it's like the way it's treated. It's a little bit like a time travel story. You know, it's it's a different Earth. It's a different Batman. But for Huntress, it's like going to see like a younger version of her father, uh, seeing him in a crisis that 
uh, in a personal crisis, we use crisis a lot, uh, but in a personal crisis <laughs> that is similar to a personal crisis that he had, uh, and that she know he suffered through. And she's trying to keep, kind of trying to keep history on course kind of thing. She's trying to prevent doing the quantum leap thing, you know, the, to, to set right what once went wrong or something. It's treated like that because she knows an older version of Bruce Wayne. It's like she's in the past somehow, even though they're co- actually contemporaries, right? Kind of feels like a Christmas carol mm-hmm. in that regard, where she's kind of the ghost of Christmas future, I guess. Yeah, you go to a cemetery. There is, There are some... Christmas Carol-y kind of things, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Except it's not Tiny Tim in that um, grave. It's his dad. But yeah, it, it's kind of like a reverse version of A Christmas Carol where it's where the original story by Charles Dickens is about trying to get Ebenezer Scrooge to actually become a good person, whereas the Huntress here is trying to prevent Batman from giving up on who he is. Right. So. Let's talk about little bits and bobs here. There, one question that I had, uh, and I don't know. I, I know you read the story like every year, so I don't know if you can remember the first time you read it. But did you get the tapping clue on first read? The fact that there was like that tapping uh, sound on the tape, and that the the old man was Amos Randolph was uh, had like a nervous tap going. There are early clues there. Even like the bodyguard that this man has, who looks like he's been recruited from Gotham's underworld, you know, it's just like, who is this big bruiser in this guy's house? So there are some clues that the reader can figure it out as the the story moves forward. I did not get the tapping. I thought it was like kind of hidden inside the art. But did you get it like the first time or did it need like a second time to, to actually see all that. I sure did not get it on the first uh, read. Uh, I actually noticed it on the second read. Like, uh, actually on the first read, as soon as Bruce mentions the nervous tapping on the cassette or the tape that he was listening to, that's when I actually went back and looked at all the previous pages. And I'm like, oh wait, no, there is that tapping uh, habit on the earlier uh, stories where Bruce and Helena, they visit Amos Randolph in his mansion, and he does his nervous tapping there. And then he does it again in the uh, flashback sequence where he's uh-huh. tapping Thomas Wayne's uh, shoulder. And then even in the sequence where Spurs Sanders is actually playing the uh, reels, the tape reels for Bruce and Helena as Batman and Huntress, you see that you hear you see that tap 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 on the tapes as well and so yeah there are clues peppered throughout the series that you don't notice the first time but then you will notice it when you go and reread the whole thing from the beginning it's like oh yes that's this has been planted there from the beginning but the reader doesn't catch it and i think it's very purposely done to get the reader to go back and see all those clues from the beginning it's very cleverly mm-hmm. done it did not catch it the first time either you know i caught it only after bruce said hey that tapping noise has been the thing that tipped him off. I'm like, wait, how come we did not notice this earlier? Oh, yes, it was there earlier from yeah. the beginning. Uh, we haven't talked about the art here. Jim Aparo, of course, one of the seminal Batman artists of the Bronze Age. Brave and the Bold had a lot of these uh, silent sequences. Neil Adams did them. Jim Aparo here does one. Uh, the first page is almost entirely silent. There is a tap tap, but it's just like foreshadowing. It's not, it's not Amos. And like a, a quiet thank you to Batman as Santa Claus, which is a nice bit. You know, Batman is taking care of the orphans, just like he was an orphan. So I like that aspect of the character, that charitable aspect to the Batman, uh, that he's not just fists mm-hmm. and anger. He also has a kind heart and he's trying to do good. He's a philanthropist, even as Batman. And that's not Bruce Wayne leaving toys at the door. You know, it's, it's Batman himself. There's, you see the shadow. So these silent sequences, 
really show off the art and let like the art speak for itself. Uh, which Brain on the Bowl was doing at a time when comics were very exposition heavy. Or, do you have favorite bits of the art here uh, in this in this issue? Uh, Jim Aparo is one of my favorite artists for the Bronze Age era. I just love the way that he draws Batman. I love the way that he draws the Huntress. I love the way that he draws all of DC's characters. He's, he's very dynamic in the way that he portrays the characters. You know, whatever they're feeling, he really captures that. Whatever they're thinking, he's re- he really captures that. And then, of course, you've got the Huntress who is, you know, very pensive when she's very happy when she first appears, but also very pensive. And she's still pensive when she goes to look for her Uncle Bruce. And then you've got Batman who suddenly goes from being happy to see Commissioner Gordon to being determined to being shocked and, oh my God, what what's going on here? I see a file with my dad's name, so he really captures the emotion very succinctly and then when we get to the sequence in the penthouse where bruce is very pensive he's very sad he's like what what i can't believe this i do not know how to process what just happened and then you've got the huntress who's like you're a detective you can figure it out and i just i just love the way that he draws facial expressions i love the way that he draws body language he truly really does capture what these characters are experiencing at any given time. And then you've got the, I have to say, Jim Aparo is one of my favorite artists for the Huntress because he just really captures her really, really well. You know, I just love the way that he draws her both in her civilian and, um, Huntress identities. And Amos Randolph is also very well drawn. You know, you never suspect from the way that he's wheeled in and you, you see the nervous tapping on the wheelchair there. When he's first being wheeled in, you just don't suspect this man whatsoever. He's just so, he looks so fragile, so worn out, so worn thin. And he really captures that immensely. So yeah, Jim Aparo, he's definitely a legend in comics. He's definitely one of the best Batman artists of the century, the 20th century. And, you know, it's just, you cannot replace Jim. If you had gotten a different artist, on this one story, it would it would not have been the same. So I'm glad that Jim Aparo got to do this story. The the way that he captures the emotions, the way that he captures all the different layers of thought that Batman is going through this entire sequence, and then you get the Huntress version of it. It's just so very well done. You you just you feel for the characters, you feel what they're feeling, and it really sets the mood perfectly. You know, and the colors here are also really make it stand out so it's it's great i love this story pretty much every front he's very good also uh, it's it's a weird thing to say maybe but he's very good at doing snow and his <laughs> I, I mean maybe maybe i'm thinking also of last year's there's a lot of brave and the bold stories that he drew that have snow in them it's like batman goes to switzerland you know it's we, we need snow because he's so good at it and last year's christmas story that uh, we covered on fw team up uh, was also a Jim Aparo. Uh, it was like the Batman Plastic Man Christmas story. Again, full of snow, although part of the story took place in Florida. It's, it's like when I watch movies. It's because I live in a snowy climb. Whenever there's snow in a movie or on a TV show or in a comic book, I somehow relate to it better. And if it's not done right, I notice because yeah, I know what snow looks like, you know, and in movies, very often snow does not look right because it's coconut flakes or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it does not look icy for sure. No. So in this case, I mean, it's snowing in Gotham. I, I feel like Gotham is one of those, you know, because it is such a kind of cesspool, uh, although it wasn't that bad in the Bronze Age. 
It's very snowy. They've busted their budget already. Their snow budget is already blown. Uh, so there's a lot of snow in the streets. It's, you know, they're, nobody's sweeped it up. Kind of the city is kind of locked in that, that snow globe. Uh, the way he draws it. There's so much snow. It's in the way. It's, you know, it's dangerous. It's slippery. And it makes you feel that throughout the story, through the art. I, I like the snowy Gotham. I feel like Gotham is a northerly city that is, you know, one of the many problems of living there. It's not just the crime wave. <laughs> it's like harsh winters. To think of Batman swinging through the city in, in the middle of a snowstorm is like a great image. So I like every Batman story that, that takes place in the winter. I, I kind of love those. Uh, particularly. It also makes Gotham feel very warm. I know that's a paradox to say, but you know, when you think of freezing weather, you're not thinking of a homey warm feel. You're thinking of it, how cold it is, but no, Gotham is always, at least in modern comics, it's always portrayed as being this very grim, very grimy, very dirty city. And then you've got snow. I don't know if you've read, um, Batman Noel by Lee Bermejo and Brian Azzarello, but it's also got that very home feel to it as well. Snow in Gotham just gives it a very homey feel, like it's a very comfortable place, which is probably ironic because no one thinks of that as with snow in our world. But I mean, I, I get it because it's like, this is a very dark city and that puts a an innocent whiteness on it in a way. And then it forces you into the interiors. And if you look at the interiors here, it's fireplaces, it's a lot of light, the kids in the orphanage, it's like there's like this bla blazing yellow coming out of out of the room. Uh, and at the end, when we get to the like, everybody's having their Christmas in different uh, panels. Again, it's like, okay, you got your Christmas tree, you got that blazing candle, you got little cherubs flying around, you got the the DC staff signed this book. So there's like signatures for, I, I don't know how many dozens, three or four dozen, uh, DC staffers, writers, artists, editors, uh, all sorts, uh, who have signed like a parchment. This book was DC's Christmas card in 1982. Even though we're, we have shots of Batman and the Huntress in a cemetery, you know, the sun is rising. The rest of the page has. Uh, you know, holly and uh, Christmassy feel. And you get that warmth because, well, it works with the Christmas story, obviously. When it's cold outside, you come in and inside is where the colors are, where the, the heat is. Jim Apero and whoever colored this, it's Adrian Roy, right? Yes, Adrian yeah. Roy. So they've really created a an atmosphere that is hot and cold, and it's, it actually comes off the page. Yeah, and notice that there's a lot of use of warm colors throughout the comic by Adrian Roy that really helps convey that warm and uh, homey feel to it. And um, yeah, it's like the background in particular, it's either pink or red or yellow and occasionally blue, but it's mostly purple, pink, red, and yellow. You see this throughout the comic, and that really helps convey the uh, the feel of this warm story. You know, don't forget mom and dad, this Christmas is even done in reds. <laughs> you can't miss it. You, you can't miss it, you know, even though it blends in with the background and the focus is really on Helena Wayne and Bruce Wayne. They really pop out. They're very brightly colored compared to the rest of the uh, background. But yeah, it's just it every page has red or a warm color attached to it so it helps convey that feeling of warmth and home i guess we have a santa and we also have bruce wayne's one-shot girlfriend here at the club gotham who's wearing a sort of christmas you know a sort of santa coat you know so you get those popping reds 
the comic knows it is a Christmas story. You know, it's it's got to have those colors. Yeah, definitely. And you see that peppered throughout. So you've got everything. You've got even got green and red on the clothing, like the son, for example, and the dad, the bad Santa from earlier in the story. He's got a red coat and the son's got a green coat with a green hat. And you've got the uh, the villains in the story who are colored in blue. So they're all color coded to convey their roles in the story even. It's just, it's interesting how very well thought out this comic is, this one story. Who fared better? Our debates touching various topics. Uh, first of all, the question I always ask, how well does this fit each of the characters' stories or atmosphere? So is this more of a Batman story or more of a Huntress story? What do you think? I think it's more of a Batman story and Huntress is kind of like the ghost of Christmas present here. That's how it comes off to me. Okay, sure. Uh, I, I can't really disagree. I mean, it's his personal crisis and she's sort of a witness slash helper slash inspiration slash pinch hitter. And like I said earlier, I think this is a story that could have happened without her, but adds a lot of texture because she's there, you know? All right. So what about cool moves? Cool moves. Yeah. What is the Huntress's coolest move in this book? Oh, I think my personal favorite one has to be when she visits uh, Spurs Sanders at the end of the uh, story where she's like, she's got that very menacing, very confident pose when she says, oh yeah, I dropped off your uh, records to Commissioner Gordon, who's had you on his Christmas list for quite some time, and then she smirks, and then she kind of just believes him, you know, she kind of snarks at him. She's like, oh, you're still a jailbird. So I think that for me was the coolest move of the Huntress. It's a great smirk, and I also like that not only did she deliver the files, but they're in, they're gift-wrapped. They're literally gift-wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> Took that time. She even, <laughs> you know, put it in a box. She even put a bow on it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, perfect. Uh, for Batman, I'm going to say, and I'm not going to go for a fighting or anything move, because I think it's being Santa Claus to Gotham's orphans. Uh, the, the delivering toys and sort of not st sticking around for a thank you or maybe, I don't know, scared a bejesus out of the kids. <laughs> I love that element. I, I love that they, they spent an entire page opening the story with that, which is has nothing to do with any kind of plot. You know, it just... Already we're, we're sort of reaching to a nostalgia of childhood and how Christmas uh, is important to kids. And it'll come back later in a flashback sort of thing. But that entire page, to me, is the coolest thing that Batman does. Characters can have dumb or weird moves. And that's our next topic. Uh, so what is uh, Helena's dumbest or weirdest move here? Oh, I, I don't think she really has one, to be honest, because she's kind of there to inspire Batman more so than anything. Um, I guess the most hilarious panel for me is the one where they uh, come into Spurs Sanders' house for the first time. Batman throws a bat ring at, uh, I think, a henchman there. And then what is Huntress kicking? Because it looks like the man is falling in the opposite direction that her foot is in. So Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Not entirely sure. Maybe she uh, uh, sweep the leg. Sweep the leg. Yeah, I, I, that's the that's Maybe. that's the closest thing that comes to mind is where. Okay, so she's kicking in the opposite direction that the man is falling in. So hmm. what's what's something hit his side? I guess that was supposed to be her leg, but that's the only weird. I wouldn't say it's a dumb panel, but it's a very weird panel the way it's drawn in. Her boobs are kind of also flying upward as she does that as well. So <laughs> it's it's kind of interestingly drawn to put it that way. 
<laughs> Batman makes uh, more mistakes, let's say, in this. Uh, you know, turning his back uh, on, a, on a bad guy or quitting being Batman. I think that's the, his dumbest or weirdest move is anytime Batman impetuously quits. Hmm. I just think it's silly. I think for me, for Batman, it's when he calls Helena by her real name in front of the bad guy that they just took down. In the opening mm. sequence, he calls her Helena, not Huntress. At the same time, she doesn't really have an identity in that world, so... Oh, that's true. There's nothing to hide. I, I you know, I, I do like that, that we see her as she's like the cousin or whatever, but we do see shades of her real identity in the book. I don't mean when she's palling around with Bruce, but uh, even when, you know, when she calls out uh, Sanders on finer points of the law is basically her DA background there coming through. So I like that. The friendly farewell. This is a team-up tradition. Uh, how do you rate this this goodbye between the characters? Give it a five star. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, these guys have a personal relationship uh, that predates these events, they, they don't get to interact much after this, I guess, because we're already 1982. You know, she's going to go back to Earth 2, and I, I don't know how much interaction she has with her uncle Bruce. After the story. Yeah. Um, I would say that I think it's very fitting for what the story was actually going for, because as I said earlier, going back to my earlier point, the story is about family and what that means to all the different characters involved in the story. And I feel that it really drives home the idea that, you know, it doesn't matter who your family members are as long as you love them. And you've got that message conveyed in the last two panels of the story. And, um, yeah, we don't, she doesn't actually get together with, uh, Bruce Wayne after this one, but I think it's a very appropriate way to end the story. She kind of fulfilled her role as, you know, the ghost of Christmas present, I guess. So <laughs> she's she's there to comfort him. And so I really I give it a five star because it's just throughout the whole story. She's just there for him. And she reminds him what it means to have family, what it means to be family. And so that's carried out throughout the story. I would say it's, it's perfect for me. All right. We'll take a break for a couple of promos and then we'll be back with our bonus team ups. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics, her parents are Catman and the Huntress, but it didn't prevent their murder at the hands of the mob. Now, Bryce Wayne takes on the fight in their memory as the Purple Bat, striking fear into the hearts of Gotham's underworld. Follow her adventures each month in the pages of All-Star Detective. To confront the ultimate killers, I must construct the ultimate alias. Hey, who is that lady? I think she could fly. To combat the murderers who destroy my family, crush my own life on their way to consuming everything, I must become a greater, more fearsome destroyer. Ah! Ah, no, no! Hey, my kill this lady. To track down the animals who prey on the innocent, I must stalk them first. I am no longer their quarry. I am the Huntress. You can listen to The Huntress Podcast online at thehuntresspodcast.com, at Apple Podcasts. Go to Twitter at Huntress Podcast. And again, this shares a feed with the Batgirl Cassandra Kane Podcast. Cheers. We're back. Our final feature, the bonus team up in which each of us proposes a perfect Huntress team up. So, Diane, what have you got for us? I would go with Huntress and Huntress because after 30 years, DC owes us a team up between the original Dark Knight daughter and Gotham's very own favorite mafia princess. Yes, DC, I am saying, give us an Earth 2 Helena Wayne. 
and Helena Bertinelli team up. It's long overdue. <laughs> it's surprising they haven't done it. I, I don't know. It's because they treat them as the same character. I'm mm. saying stop treating them as the same character. <laughs> and let's yeah, let's let's have them meet and compare notes. And uh, I think there's like a kinder, gentler huntress, and then there's a more angry, aggressive huntress. And uh, I think that, that w the clash would be interesting. I agree. Yeah. I love it. I went for the Huntress and the Bronze Age Wonder Woman. So, so again, a team up that will never happen. But uh, uh, because I first discovered Helena Wayne as a backup in Wonder Woman in the early 80s. That's where I first encountered the character. And I would want to pay tribute to that with a story where one or the other crosses over to the other's Earth. Uh, where they can have an adventure together in in that era, in the Bronze Age. Uh, very much a world's finest before they actually did that in the New 52. Uh, and I'd even dig up an old Bronze Age world's finest villain duo for the occasion, a pair of favorites from World's Finest Comics at the time, Null and Void, uh, which only I really remember. <laughs> I, I, I love those uh, thieving partners, uh, and they have like very strange power sets. You know, if I were a writer at DC, I'd be finding... All sorts of excuses to use them. That's <laughs> what I would do. I love their names. Null and Void, literally meaning nothing. As clever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the end of the show. Thanks for teaming up with me, Diane. Tell people what you're working on and where they can find you. Uh, right now, I'm about to cover the DC TV mega event on the CW Crisis on Infinite Earths, which will also feature the first appearance of Ashley Scott's Huntress from the Birds of Prey TV show from 2003. We kind of saw her cameo already, but we don't know if she's got a bigger role to play in the finale of Crisis. So I look forward to seeing what they do with the character during the crossover, or at least the finale, because that's what's left at this point. Uh, hopefully she doesn't stay dead like the original Helena Wayne character did in the comic book version. Oh, damn you, Marvel, when you could have killed Batman instead, but okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> That being said, well, he's been around for 50 years at this point that crisis happened. You know, Helena Wayne only got eight years. So yeah, if I had to sacrifice a Wayne character, I would have sacrificed Batman and that would have been much more impactful and just have Helena take over as the Huntress, yeah. make the DC universe really feel that loss. But anyway, that being said, I can be found at HelenaWayneHuntress.com and on Twitter, you can find me at HelenaWayneBlog. I'll uh, wish you some happy holidays. What's left of them? Well, I, we're taping this before the holidays, so you have some good holidays. I'll let you go. I'll be back with listener feedback from our previous episode, so stick around. Thanks, Diane. Thank you. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994, or 1944, or maybe 2994? Time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis, and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. Here are excerpts from your feedback from our last episode, which was a uh, an ultimate Spider-Man and FF team-up. My guest was Tim Price. So on Ultimate Team-Up number nine, uh, here are some of your comments. Our very own network's Max Romero. 
is a big fan of Jim Mahfoud, who was the artist on that issue. And uh, you'd never heard of this one, so we've given him something to track down. Uh, we also have Chris Franklin says, fun show, dip my toes in Ultimate Spidey, but didn't stick around long. I did make a tidy profit selling the first 12 or so issues when they were still hot. So at least there's that. I had no idea how fast and loose Marvel was playing with the Ultimate versions of their characters, introducing them multiple times until something stuck. Then the... Um, Ultimate, ultimate, Reed Richards, go all nuts and destroy the universe or something. I seem to recall reading about that somewhere. Tim came back in to give more details. He says, this is correct, Chris, after the ultimatum event where he irreparably ruined his friendship with the rest of the ultimate FF. Ultimate Reed Richards traveled into a limbo-like dimension and discovered that his body was essentially immortal, so he stayed there for a thousand years, gaining knowledge and power and going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He returned in uh, Ultimate Mystery and Ultimate Enemy as the Maker to make over the world by force and did a pretty fine job of it up to Hickman's Secret Wars, which destroyed the multiverse. Ultimate Reed did help fight against Doctor Doom to get the multiverse restored, but rather than return to Earth 1610, he stayed in Earth 616 and has been making trouble in New Avengers, infamous Iron Man, and probably other places that I haven't read yet. Thanks for Tim explaining that. Uh, and we have Max Travers says, I was fully on board with Ultimate Spider-Man from day one, and I remember being totally thrown by this issue. It just seemed so unlike the slow, slow, deliberate pace of the Ultimate Spider-Man book to so obviously just throw things at the wall and not even really seem to care if they stick. <laughs> Spider-Man sticking to walls. Uh, thanks, Max. He also says it just felt strangely haphazard for an otherwise carefully planned and executed project. Then again, I'm not sure how quickly it all went off the rails, or at least I don't trust my memory of it. I know that Ultimate X-Men and FF never really landed for me, and I grew tired of Ultimates pretty quickly. With all that said, I think I recall you folks mentioning the Marvel Adventures line during the episode. Now that was a line of books that I thoroughly enjoyed. Thanks for another fun episode. Yes, thank you, Max. I'm going to leave it at that uh, this time around so you can more quickly get back to your Christmas goodies and family. Just one last mention, Fire & Water is on Patreon. We have a Patreon page. And if you like this sort of content, uh, please think about leaving a one-time or a monthly donation like our very own sponsor, this show's sponsor, Alan W. Wright. He is brave. He is bold. He is Marvel Team Up. Uh, okay, maybe that doesn't make any sense. But uh, he is our very own sponsor. If you want to be a sponsor like that, you can just tell us which show you want to sponsor. And it would be my pleasure to dedicate an episode to you. On that note, you know we love your comments. I want to read them. What did you think of this Hunter's Batman story? And the best place to do that is fireandwaterpodcast.com, where we also have an image gallery that presents some of the uh, pages and panels that we discussed today. And uh, if not... Of course, you're welcome at our Fire and Water uh, Facebook page or on Twitter, where our account is FW Podcasts. That's it for me. Come back uh, next time for another amazing superhero team-up, because after all, justice is a team effort. Happy holidays! Who the hell are you? I'm the Huntress, and you're the prey. Lovely outfit. Thank you. Going dancing later. <laughs>